Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today I'm talking to John Lanchester about walls, about nightmare scenarios and about what happens when the young blame the old for the terrible state of the world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. The big theme of this conversation is climate change. We are going to be doing more episodes about climate in future because we haven't done enough. John Lanchester's new novel, The Wall, is an imagining of a world after the change, and we'll hear in a bit about what that might mean. I recorded this conversation with John Lanchester a couple of weeks ago in London. This is about a novel, so we're talking fiction as well as fact, but we are also discussing some of the nightmare scenarios with climate. It's not all doom and gloom. Stick with us and we do get to some hope at the end. We're of a generation for whom the kind of drumbeat of climate disaster has been there in the background for our adult lives, not as children, but I think most of our adult lives. Was there a point where it moved into the foreground for you, or does it kind of move back and forth, or is there a moment that you recognise that that existential terror came to the front of your mind? Well, in a funny way as a generational thing, there was almost a switch of existential terrors because... Yeah, our childhood terror was the bomb. It was the bomb. And there's that thing that I often think of, a thing Napoleon said, that you know, to understand a person, you have to know what the world looked like when they were 20. And I was 20 in 1982. And, you know, people my age routinely dreamt about the atom bomb being dropped. And it really was in everyone's heads. I mean, partly... I mean, obviously, it just it is inherently completely terrifying. And also, CND very deliberately campaigned on images of the end of the world. And there was a very deliberate attempt to get inside people's heads. To... Plus, there were those films and TV shows, Threads, the scariest thing that ter- I have ever seen. Yeah, utterly terrifying. And The Day After, which was banned for a long time and then eventually shown in, also utterly terrifying. And I talked to people who are in CND since and, and said they actually... Some of them regret it now that they were so went on that point of fear. But so, no, it was, it was a switch. I'm not sure I could put my finger on the exact moment. I remember the first time I heard about it, not long after the idea was first floated, by James Hansen, an NASA scientist who, whose interest was in the climate of Venus, because Venus is outlandishly hot. It's several hundred centigrade on the surface and hot enough to melt lead, famously. And he was studying that and was wondering why Venus was so hot and then basically realised that it was because of what we call, some scientists think it's a misnomer because the greenhouse there's actually something physically, there's actually a solid barrier whereas the, the physics is a bit more complicated with, with gas but you know that was the phenomenon at work and it, and it was a feedback effect, it ran away and you know Venus is quite a good approximation of how we imagine hell and then he suddenly realised that hang on a minute, we're pouring gases into our atmosphere that could have a very similar effect and so I came across it in sort of a nerdy way in science reading quite early and 
at the first it was sort of almost, I wouldn't say amusing, but there was, oh, isn't that a quirky odd thing that the Earth's getting warmer? Ha ha. And then gradually, I think through the late 80s and 90s, we could see that this thing, you know, A, likely was happening, and B, if you, you know, scrolled forward into the future, had the potential to completely reshape the planet. I mean, I think there's a huge counterfactual about the whole, our whole consciousness of it. And oddly enough, it's about Mrs. Thatcher, because she was the first world leader to talk about climate change. She's not coincidentally one of the only world leaders to have a, a degree in science. I think, I think Jimmy Carter's degree was in physics, but I think they're the only leaders of great democracies to have had science backgrounds. Thatcher was a chemist, and she was the first person to talk about it in public. And I do think it's, as I say, a counterfactual if Thatcher had stayed in power longer and had sort of led and owned the conversation about climate change. We might not have had this very odd thing whereby the Conservative parties don't actually seek to conserve. One of the quirks of that, so the story goes, is that because the British Antarctic Survey was so helpful to her in the Falklands War, she took them very seriously. And one of the ways in which she showed that she took them seriously, she listened to them about climate. That's a real weird quirk of history. I'd never heard that. That's fantastic. The Falklands War turned her on to environmentalism. But so you were with that, as you are with quite a lot of things, a kind of early adopter. You were reading the science. The 80s, 90s, that predates my awareness of it. Did you have a sense, well, as this filters through to public consciousness, it will progressively move up the political agenda? Were you, as it were, waiting for the moment when other people could see what you could see? Well, two things about that. I mean, firstly, I think... There was a sort of initial moment, oh, that, that's an amusing little quirk of physics. And then when people started talking about what that might mean, I mean, almost immediately, I remember hoping it wasn't true. Climate denial is the easiest thing in the world to understand because we all wish it's not true. And to this day, you know, I look at the probabilistic stuff and the International Panel on Climate Change talks about, you know, things being likely and very likely. And I've forgotten what the probability bands are. I think very likely is, I think it's, one in 20, it's sort of 95% confident. And I do find myself, well, that might, you know, one in 20 chance that it's wrong. Let's hope it is. And, and the predictions about warming, they are a fan-like thing of probabilities. You know, the lines radiate out. And, you know, obviously the ones at the top range of that for warming are unimaginable catastrophes. But the ones in the lower range aren't. And you know, I do cling on to that like a security blanket at times, you know, really, because, you know, the statistics do imply a possibility of lucky escape. So all along, I've you know, been wanting it not to be true. You wrote in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago about encouraging people to read the science. It's, it's relatively accessible. But it's also one of these odd political issues, more than just political issues, where in some ways, the science is scarier than the journalism. I mean, we normally think of the journalism as being the kind of lurid thing. But it's almost because the journalism is straining for effect. I don't think anyone knows anymore how to convey this journalistically. Whereas the, the dispassionate science with this language of probability, some of the things it describes as, broadly speaking, probable are hellish. They are. I find on that point about how to convey it that uh, I have to keep monitoring my own use of the word unimaginable. Uh, because uh, it's something that keeps coming up. I think when they set up the International Panel on Climate Change, it was set up in the 90s by the UN. It was a deliberate thing to use a very sober, probabilistic 
language and it was linked to the question of credibility that things were too lurid too spectacular too vivid you could say that it would seem like they were trying to to sell it in a way it leaves a gap you have scientists talking about a world of four degrees warmer and then you have to translate that into what that would look like and then because that is a sort of hellscape and you end up resorting to words like unimaginable to describe it then I think it becomes oddly easier to dismiss so I wonder if there's a thing where looking back we'll feel that there was something we failed at collectively in how to communicate how to convey how to sort of persuade people to act on a probabilistic basis about something completely terrible so there's science and there's dystopian fiction so dystopian fiction is the route that you're going down at the moment were you are you a fan of dystopias not particularly, and I didn't have that word in my head when I was writing it. Um, but do you not like this book being described in those terms? No, I don't mind. And you have to, you know, books get described the way they get described. And if you could sort of lock down and control the way a book is described, that that would mean it's not alive, you know, I mean, it's not a thing in its own right. It didn't occur to me, really, which I suppose then raises the question, why not? I suppose I was thinking... Once I sort of had the premise of, okay, a world after catastrophic climate change and the kind of impact implied by four degrees of warming, which fundamentally reshapes the map of the world, and I thought, well, that will fundamentally reshape everything about life and societies and just how everything works, how people feel, just the whole texture of life. And that was the thing that was on my mind. It was a question of... Uh, what would that be like? The, I suppose the reason I didn't think of it as dystopian was I was thinking about trends in the present projected into the future and then trying to imaginatively inhabit them. So you weren't thinking, for instance, of the road because you've got the wall, the road, these two books about, the, the names are relatively similar, about an unspecified event in both cases in the road. And the road, I think... For my generation, particularly a kind of generation of parents, was an incredibly powerful book. Almost everyone I know has read it and was deeply affected by it. And there are some parallels, and yet they're also very different books. And we can come on to that in a second. But you weren't, that wasn't in your mind at all. Because when I read it, it was the obvious point of comparison. Well, I'm glad you said almost everyone you know read it because I'm one of the people who hasn't. So it can't have been. <laughs> so it can't have been, uh, mainly because I couldn't bear it. You know, I could see, I sort of heard about it, Father the Son, and uh, I just and it thought... Is it is unbearable. Uh, yeah, I just reason. thought I don't want it, I don't want it in my in my head. I have a great friend who's a philosopher who's very interested in the road as a... So oddly enough, I've had long, detailed conversations about the road. This book that you it, can't bear to read. I can't bear to read. Um, he, he's very interested in it linked with post-apocalyptic and zombie films and things like that and his line on it Robert Stern he's a professor at Sheffield is that there's a certain sort of post-apocalyptic thing that's interested in ethics that it's in a world there's nobody there there's just you and various other extreme desperate survivors and that becomes a story about ethics what your responsibilities are to other people how you should behave because it's a thing Simone Weil said that, you know, if you imagine a a world with no people in it, if there's only one person in it, that person has no rights, but they still have obligations. There's an interesting thread in 
post-apocalyptic fiction. But I think that's not the thread in this book because I just don't think it addresses that question of what, as it were, what we owe to others. I was going to say the, there are lots of differences between them, but two that stood out for me. Yours is not about social collapse. It's about social collapse outside the wall. But it's a society that in brutal ways has held itself together, rigidly together. So it's not that kind of stripped away, who are we when everything else is gone? But the road, it, it, it affects my generation, our generation. It's unbearable to read because it is from the parents' point of view. And the wall is about not the children, but the young adults, uh, the defenders. And it's from their point of view. You know, the other obvious point of comparison is with young adult fiction, which the road isn't. The road is kind of, frankly, middle-aged and old adult fiction. It's, and it touches on all of those sentiments. Yours has a kind of bracing young adult fiction quality to it too. Was that in your mind? Well, I th- the one thing I would say, and think about social collapse, is actually I think that society has collapsed in a sense, but it's collapsed morally. That I mean, it's become a slave state. It's become a kind of not authoritarian, you know, morally blind. Um, so you could almost say the ethics have collapsed, but the inst- some of the institutions have held together. Whereas yeah, in a way, I, in the road, every institution has gone and you're just left, there's ethics or nothing, and, well, and often nothing. I, what I was thinking about was, again, to come back to the map of the world four degrees warmer and what that would be like. And I said, well, actually, that's a world war. I mean, I've, I've long thought that, that the kind of, both the effort involved in, slowing and mitigating climate change and its consequences if we don't. We are talking about the, the kind of effort that was involved in World War II. I mean, was, one of the things I always thought was interesting, <laughs> when the, the Nazis worked out that it was possible to build an atomic bomb, they ran the numbers and came to the conclusion that it would take something like the entire GDP of a medium-sized country to produce the bomb. And therefore, they thought, oh, it's not possible, and abandoned it. And they were right. That is what it took. It was like the GDP of a medium-sized country. That's exactly what the Allies, mainly America, spent on it. And, you know, that scale of effort, I did imagine in terms of the impact on the society. And it's a bit like World War II. You do have, in one sense, functioning institutions. And on the other hand, you have a kind of moral closing down and a process of, you know you shut down certain questions and you, and also internally you shut down and just get through it. So there is something pinched and constrained about the, not just the functioning of society, but also the inner lives of the people living through it. That, that was something I imagined by analogy with what that scale of convulsive change and conflict would be like. On the point about, again, I mean, dystopia wasn't in my head, young adult wasn't in my head, but I was very aware of wanting to put it from the point of view of someone who grown up after it and because I was just interested in how that looks morally you know looking back because there's plenty of intergenerational feeling at the moment in the developed world and Britain in particular but you know can you imagine that dialed all the way up if you did literally have a thing in some of the accelerated versions of climate change in which it happens within a generation how the people who grow up after it are going to look at the people on whose watch it happened and I was very interested in that and Kavanagh, the, the narrator, does choose to personalise it. I mean, he very directly and personally blames his parents. I read it on a train to Norwich, not the most dystopian place in the world, but I was giving a talk on intergenerational politics to a 
intergenerational audience. Again, not particularly diverse in other ways. It was Norwich, but six formers and their parents and some of their grandparents and so on. And because I just read your book, I read them, a paragraph that I think has struck a lot of people. I'm going to ask you to read it. And then I'll tell you what I told this audience about it. And I'd really like to hear your response. None of us can talk to our parents. By us, I mean my generation, people born after the change. You know that thing where you break up with someone and say, it's not you, it's me. This is the opposite. It's not us, it's them. Everyone knows what the problem is. The diagnosis isn't hard, the diagnosis isn't even controversial. It's guilt, mass guilt, generational guilt. The olds feel they irretrievably fucked up the world, then allowed us to be born into it. You know what? It's true. That's exactly what they did. They know it. We know it. Everybody knows it. So that produced an intake of breath in Norwich. Part of the point was to suggest you think it's bad now. You know, that there is a form of intergenerational conflict which is itself like a civil war or worse. But the other thought was speaking to an audience now. So this is set at some unspecified point in the future. And the audience that I was speaking to had three generations in it. You know, generational politics always now cuts across. The, the sort of grand parental question is there too. But your olds are today's youngs. I mean, that's the, the incredible complication of this story. Where is the guilt now? Because, of course, to a contemporary audience, the people under the age of 25 do feel a bit like this about their parents' and grandparents' generation, but we have not had the change. And when the change comes, it's one of the ways in which young people today are screwed because they're being pulled in both directions. They will be both blamed and the victims of this. Well, I think, I did make a general point about that. You know, it is a work of fiction, and one of the things that I was trying to convey is that Kavanagh has his point of view, but he's not. we don't always have to agree with it. And I think there's a thing that sometimes happens in family arguments, arguments in general, is some is someone can say something that's completely true in the sense that it's entirely true to their feelings and the way they see their world and they're absolutely telling the truth. And at the same time, it's not necessarily fair. And I think Kavan is obviously telling the truth in terms of that's how he sees it. But I think it's up to the reader to decide whether that's entirely fair about his poor old mum and dad sitting there in their, in, in their Midlands suburb, you know, how much agency they had, because he very directly blamed them personally. They, I think they do they, seem, as described by you, quite guilt-stricken. Yes, uh, well, I think that is how it would play out. But if someone is blaming you for something constantly, 24-7, you do feel guilty, you know, and you feel other things as well. Uh, and don't forget, it's Kavanagh's version of them. That, that is the one we get. And, you know, Kavanagh doesn't notice that he's in a slave state. He just doesn't see it. You know, we are meant to see things out of the corner of his vision, moral vision, that he's not seeing himself. I think the thing about, as it were, the young of today are the ones who will be the old of tomorrow, and we're leaving them a thing they have to fix, is very much a thing that's happening with climate, because to slow down, to mitigate, to reduce the impacts as much as we can, we're asking people other than ourselves to not have the life we had. Part of the reason it's um, such a difficult problem is that we are saying, you, you know this like this amazing life we have when we have two cars and fridges and X number of holidays a year. You can't have that. We've used it up. This fantastic developed world lifestyle which the Egyptian pharaohs would have envied and you can see on your television or on any other device you want 
any time you want. You can't have it because we, we ate all the pies. But you'll feel morally very virtuous. And plus also, by the way, you've got no choice. That's part of what's so unfair. I do think it's just um, colossally, on an intergenerational and planetary scale, brutally unfair that this distribution of goods has worked out the way it looks like it's going to. Because in a way, Kavanaugh's parents are the victims of that story. They are both the ones who were told, you don't get this, but also the ones who get blamed. Sure, and he doesn't... Without the agency, like And he doesn't see that. Yeah. So one of the other ways in which your future... It's it's unique, and it it's a future that is like the past in lots of ways. So the other thing that young people are told is there won't be any jobs for them, and that they're increasingly marginal to the functioning of the kind of societies we live in. This is a world in which to be a soldier, a defender, to have physical power, the, the ability to perform acts of violence, which has always been what young people could do, makes the young central again. So you describe a world, it's a kind of 19th century world in some ways, where as these soldiers move back through civilian life, they're treated with a mixture of fear, some grudging respect, but a sense that this is the generation that's doing the heavy lifting in this society. Because it is, your future is a, it's a low-tech future. The wall is a pretty low-tech piece of technology, and it requires physical labor and violence to defend it. So it's a, it's a future that's like the past too. And and you can, young people today, that's not how they see the future. Yes, I mean, but I'd come back to that thing about, um, you know, the four degrees warmer world and and the society it implies. And I do think it's not like ours, but with a few tweaks at the margin. I think it is, you know, fundamentally sort of revolutionary scale of restructuring of how society works and indeed of people's sense of themselves. I mean, I think part of the what the wall does is it also divide, as walls historically do, it divides the world into the people on one side and people on the other. And the thought that was in my mind was that the thing about service on the wall is also a defining thing about who the citizens of that country think they are. There's a thing in a Robert Heinlein um, novel, Starship Troopers, where to be a citizen and to have the vote, you have to have served in the military. And I did have that in the back of my mind as an image of how this society sees itself. You know, and that's the reason, in a sense, the reason they can, you know, to push someone off a lifeboat, you have to have quite a good set of excuses. And I think the thing about the wall, meaning that everyone on the other side of it is an other, is a sort of completely fundamentally different kind of person for you and the fact of having done this two-year term of service they're in a sense what make and define the society as what it is so it's either a throwback or a throw forward to a kind of more militaristic spartan fundamentalist conception of what a kind of citizen is because it cuts against another dystopian vision the kind of Yuval Harari vision of the future that we're about to divide up into between the Noah's and the people who don't know, the, the super educated, the super technically adept, who may be quite sort of um, lacking in physical prowess as well. And then the rest, this is a world in which it's a slave state, but it's a democratic quality, which is simply the ability to do grunt violent service is the qualifier. That's the thing that makes you part of the in-group. It's not 
a future where knowledge is the great divider. Well, though, again, in Kavanagh's peripheral vision, he can see that there are people who live differently within the society. The, the maybe, real elite. There is an elite. And the way I imagined it, um, it's not really... I mean, there are lots of things that I thought about in some detail and then left out of the book. I think, I mean, firstly, because you know, making up a world and then explaining it is boring for the reader. And also, but in a way, you have to think about it because it just makes it seem more three-dimensional. So things like the change, I never really go into what that actually is and why everything's so cold again which is to do with Gulf Stream I left that out and the way I imagined the society functioning was again just to re- return to this thing a sort of like a wartime pseudo-democracy that you have a sort of permanent coalition in power and the people running it are the same people as the people who've always run it but the language is different and the veneer is different and it's, it's a sort of we're all in this together you know we serve and we sacrifice but behind the scenes, there is an elite that functions differently and takes in people who weren't born into it. And um, also sacrifices its own occasionally. I mean, signals its brutality. I'm not, I'm not giving anything away if people are going to read the book, but it doesn't simply protect its own. It will also, when needed, toss some of them overboard. In a partly symbolic and partly poor encourager les autres way. And it's brutal. My conception of it is it is kind of like everything about the way that this world functions is is completely ruthless. It is a work of fiction, and I'm hesitant to do too much of the, what does it tell us about politics now, but I'm going to do that anyway. So it's a slave state. It's not fascist exactly, but it has many of those features. And it has that kind of, like you say, that mid-20th century feel to it. So we're living in a world now where some people are starting to say that the way our politics is going wrong is an early sign of what's coming. One of the oddities about climate is people have for a while been looking for the signals that we're going to take it seriously, which is not changes to the climate, but kind of manifestations in other fields. Capitalism starts to creak because it's telling us something about the climate. The markets are sending signals or politics is sending signals. We're electing these militaristic, brutalizing politicians, not just Trump, but someone like Bolsonaro in Brazil is a kind of harbinger of what's to come. And yet the deep irony is... They are the climate deniers. This thing is meant to be the thing that is sort of propelling that form of politics. And they are also, for whatever reason, in denial about that thing. Is that the pre-change version of this? Because like post-change, everyone just has to accept it. There's something weird going on there, right? I think climate denial is actually a very fundamental driving force in lots of politics. Not just in the extremes. Not just in the extremes. It's partly to do with the way the, the flow of, as it were, follow the money thing when you see where the oil money goes. But it's also because we really don't want it to be true. And I think one of, just to go back to the counterfactual about Mrs. Thatcher, I think that you know the right could have owned a version of this story. Conserve is in the name of conservatism. And I think the kind of complete polarisation around parties of the right want to burn fossil fuels and parties of the left, broadly speaking, don't <laughs> or see it more complicatedly. I'm haunted by the thought that, that that's slightly contingent as an outcome, that we we didn't have to have ended up with that and ended up with this package of things. But as it is, you have a kind of a reactionary moment and a moment where people are desperate to believe this story is not true, and politicians are using that to sell a story. And it's about elites lying, it's about... You know, as well, you don't need to eat your vegetables. Gun ownership is fine. Closed borders work. 
and climate change isn't real. You know, that it comes as a set menu. And it's the menu that seems well suited for the world in which climate change is real. That's the kind it's, of that's deep it, one of the irony. But I mean, there are optimistic things, you know, in the, the most recent IPCC report from Katowice uh, in December talked about the possibility of keeping the world to 1.5 degree of warming. We've already had one degree since the Industrial Revolution. And that's a very, very, very different world, even from the previous optimistic version from the Paris Climate Agreement of two degrees. That's hundreds of millions of lives being saved or prevented from negative impacts. And it is, you know, it, on the science, it is possible. And every government in the world accepted that. And the UN uses this language about welcoming, in quotes, you know. Um, so it wasn't welcomed officially. But the countries that blocked it were this sort of bizarre axis of denial, US, Russia, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. But every other government in the world signed up on it. And that's a positive thing in, and in terms of acceptance of the principles and the reality. The young understand it as a, not just a problem, but as an emergency. And China understands it, partly because it's not democratic. It, I mean, it's actually an interesting case study, China, when you look at other countries, because they don't have to bother with all of that. And indeed, they don't. You know, China does accept the reality of climate change. Yes, they're building coal power stations, but they're also the world's leader in solar power. And the, I think the reason for that is you have 1.3 billion people who are fed, who depend on Himalayan meltwater. That's what the Yellow and Yangtze River are. They are Himalayan meltwater. Denial doesn't help you with that. It's um, an urgent crisis in China in this generation, I mean, right here, right now. And those are all positive things. And it might be that, I mean, I don't mean it's positive that it's a crisis, but in terms of a sort of sign that this is happening and one of the world's two biggest powers has to take it seriously. And maybe the optimistic thing is that this is denial's last moment. I think there's a growing sense that a traditional view of democratic politics, which is that democracies are often quite slow to wake up to the challenges they face, but when they need to wake up, they will wake up. And that that probably won't work in this case, partly because of the time lags, partly because it's a global problem and the way that the information comes through. There is alongside that the other oft-expressed hope, which is, okay, the democracies might not wake up, but the markets will wake up. That is capitalism, broadly understood, as you said, following the money. When we really need a different course of action, the markets will signal that to us. And they are, as it were, they see the future in ways that we don't. Do you have any faith in that view? I mean, given the other stuff that you write about and study, that capitalism is a sufficiently sensitive system for this kind of problem? I'm not sure it is, partly because the last time I saw Michael Lewis, who's over in London promoting his book, and we were talking about the climate but he just, he just read the wall, and he was saying, "I wonder who, a who is doing this because you, for a fact someone is, and b exactly what they're doing. The hedge funds that will be shorting stocks based on it, and that was a, just a really interesting thought. That in the initial thing of how markets will work is that somebody right now there's a room full of clever people, far cleverer men than you and I, David, as Christopher Hitchens once said to me, far cleverer men than you and I, so far cleverer men than you and I." I'm not necessarily all men. Not necessarily all men. I'm just that's just what Hitchens said. It's an old army saying that men. Um, so this room full of nerds somewhere are trying to work out how to profit from it, and whose shares you short, and when you short them, and that bet will be on the things 
that will crash in value once people accept that this is real. That's how capitalism will start working on it. So I fear, unfortunately, it will be a, the likely thing in the short term anyway is a version of you know disaster capitalism. Are we already in that? I'm not sure we are quite, but I think it's not far off. The body that is properly thinking about it and does offer something, I wouldn't say hope exactly, but it's interesting to encounter it, is the US military, um, which produces reports which just very straightforwardly talk about the impact of climate change on its operations and on you know bases that will work and things like that. So you have Trump on the one hand denying it and just the... I was going to say the army, but in fact, it's all branches of it, just issuing reports about how much it'll cost and where it's going to hit first. And I think there's an odd sense in which the people charged with defence, which, as we both know, means war, are likely to be the ones where we see the first evidence of taking it seriously in the modern world's favourite way of taking things seriously, which is you know, try to make money out of it. Because what will happen is the, the military will adjust its spending patterns to allow for it, and then you'll have companies coming up with products and solutions designed to accept it. But that is a fairly chilling vision politically. If of the various institutions of the democratic state, it's the military that will be leading on this from here on in. I don't mind where the penny drops and if that's what it took. But it's so charged. Yeah, I remember at one point trying to use an image, mentioning somewhere an image of uh, those drowning polar bears. And they're massively controversial because... The National Geographic published this photo, said this is what climate change looks like. And then there was a giant row because you can't prove that that is why that particular polar bear is, you know, clearly visibly starving to death. And, you know, polar bears die all the time anyway. And cause and effect is overstated. And actually, on the evidence, it looks like there might be more polar bears than there were a few years ago because polar bears became a protected species and blah, blah, blah. And it's so charged around it that the conversation coming from one side is largely discounted in advance that it might take something like the US military saying the number one threat to global security is climate change. It might take that before the penny, the penny drops with people who don't want it to drop. And the other grounds for hope that we're often given is that there are geoengineering solutions here that technology, the, the one thing that's moving faster than climate change is the pace of technological change and that we should put our hope in that. The danger is you put your hope in geoengineering, you don't do the politics, you don't do any of the behavioural change. And they seem to, at the moment to cut against each other in some way. And yet the great challenge is to bring it together, somehow to connect up the thought that there might be technical or technological solutions to much of this. And without social and political change, that won't be enough. But that's incredibly hard to, to make them go together rather than to pull against each other. It is. And also, you know, there's a faith-based aspect to just accepting that science will save us. I mean, one thing I'd say is that if you look at CO2 emissions, the two main sources of them from human behaviour are transport is a big one, and it's cars, trucks, all that. It's very difficult to solve because you have tens of millions of individual actors. Yes, you can invent our way out of it over the course of half a century, maybe, but it's very difficult to address right here, right now. The, an equivalent amount of emissions are produced by coal power stations. There are 3,000 of those in the world. So it's not hard to see which one we go after hard and as intensively as we can right now. Because, you know, 3,000 coal power stations are, although we don't have the technology to fix them right here, I mean, it's possible to imagine how we could do that. The other thing, though, is we talk about, you know, 
politics and the political will and technological things. But there's also a thing now. There are a lot of very, very rich people in the world. There are many, many billionaires. And one of the possible outcomes there is that you have what's known in that world as Greenfinger, which is someone simply doing things like high atmospheric aerosol sprays that bounce more more sunlight back into the atmosphere and cool the planet that way. And that person doesn't need permission. I mean, he might need it, but he can he can do it, or she can do it without permission. And if they're from a part of the world that's being severely affected by climate change right here, right now, might well go and do, do it anyway. So there's an odd thing there that there are possible almost science fiction-like versions of it in which you just have one or two very rich individuals just latching onto a technology and deciding to give it a try anyway. And then the challenge is politics remains the domain where you deal with the unintended consequences of what you do often with the best of intentions. And the fear for me with all of those scenarios still remains that as politics and political will and the legitimacy of political institutions gets thinner and thinner, when some of these things go wrong, whether it's the military or the Greenfinger solution, we don't have the bit of our societies that we built to deal with the unintended consequences of the best intended action. Yeah, I think there's clearly a moment now where the nation state's going to have a comeback and become more important and people don't like the fact so much of the things that governments used to do are now transferred to agencies where you can't vote people out. There's a big thing in politics across the world it's sometimes just labeled as populism but actually i think it's more complicated than that people just want to be able to you know throw the bums out it's a very basic democratic mechanism and it's failing in lots of western society or perceived to be failing so i think the nation state is in the short to medium term this is going to be a that's the way to bet but one of the things about climate is that it it's a huge area where we need the other thing we need these international bodies, international cooperation, international institutions that really function and can make claims on states and can tell states, no, you've got to stop doing that. And I think the sort of moment of nation-state bounce back actually could fight against that. You know, some of the thing about some of the technologies that involve messing around with the atmosphere, it doesn't need to be green finger. It could be a country just to say, you know, well, actually, we don't care what the rules say. We are setting off this thing that puts x particles in the atmosphere because you know historically that very large volcanic eruptions have lowered the temperature globally by a degree or two for a century at a time and we're not at a point where government could do that yet but it's possible to imagine and that's when that kind of technology becomes possible we'll need international institutions and international norms more than ever because apart from anything else it might be net beneficial for humanity but there'll be losers You, you do something dramatic to the climate good in the long run, very bad for some people in the short run. Some of the people for whom the world as it is now is actually fine. 1.5 or even 2 degree warming. And we're back in the nightmare scenario of international war. Yeah, and it takes the sort of already existing thing about, of, you know, winners and losers to a, to a new level. To go back to where we started, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees warming is all the difference in the world for some people. And even within that, there are these margins. Each 0.1 degree Celsius can make a difference. That cuts against the way this has conventionally been presented as this kind of either-or thing. Like Either we do something about it or it's calamity. There's a tipping point. There's a change moment. And actually the politics of it, which connects to this probabilistic framing, which is so hard to sell politically, but in a way, maybe that's the hopeful sign 
that people come to recognize that the reason it's worth doing something is because little differences make a big difference. Whereas the problem with climate has always been it feels hopeless because it's kind of like it's so big that the only thing that can make a big difference is some big thing and it's not down to us. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at these sort of big mentioning the CND, that thing about just scaring the living daylights out of people about nuclear war, well, that doesn't leave them with much agency. You know, it's just a position of pure anxiety and despair. But then what? And there was some, an equivalent thing around the early anti-AIDS campaigns. They had these terrifying images of, you know, tombstones and sort of the way I remember it is a sort of black icebergs. I mean, it's an imagery of black and death. And, and the imagery seemed to be saying, if you have sex, you'll die. And the problem with that was it was initially terrifying, but then... You lots say, well, of people. Still, I'm going to have sex anyway, so yeah, exactly. And lots of people don't die of and, and it avoided targeting high risk communities and targeting the behaviours and making incremental positive changes that are very important. And I think something similar may have happened with with climate that a sort of all or nothing message was what was advertently or not sent out, and that takes away people's agency. I think the thing is a link between hope and agency. If every little bit helps, then we should do every little bit. I think it's very important to give people the sense that their actions, not just, you know, on the individual personal level, because actually you can argue about how much impact that has, but in terms of lobbying and voting for people who make it a crucial priority. You know, if you give people a sense of agency, they're more likely to act. We had a conversation with John Lanchester a while ago, and we'll tweet the link to that. We were talking not about climate, but about money. Next week, we're talking about surveillance capitalism with Shoshana Zuboff, who is the author of an absolute game-changing book about technology. Helen has not gone away, in case you're worried. And if anything happens with Brexit, please listen out for some extra episodes in which we will be finding out what she thinks too. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. 
Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>